Hey, it's Brandon here and I have some big news. Seven Figure Millennials is now beyond curious. I am so excited for this new brand and I would highly encourage you to go check out episode number 140 for all of the juicy details. But as a teaser for episode 140, the central question for Seven Figure Millennials, the original show from the beginning was, how can we become financially successful and have a big impact while prioritizing our happiness, health, and relationships? I spent over 1,000 hours researching this question and published 139 episodes. And after all of that, I have an answer. And I put together that answer in a legit masterclass that weaves together clips from previous guests all to answer that question. So if you wanna hear my answer, the why behind Beyond Curious and the vision moving forward, go check out episode number 140. But you are here listening to this episode, which I know is amazing, but I would just highly recommend you also check out episode number 140 for the full explanation behind the rebrand. All right, here's your episode. Well, hello there, my friend, and welcome to today's episode of Seven Figure Millennials, where together you and I are choosing to do things differently. You and I are committing to prioritizing our happiness, health, and relationships while we build a business that creates a meaningful impact in the lives of the people that we love and generating the wealth for us to design a beautiful life on our terms. And if you are here as a first-time listener or a seasoned listener, I always, always want to take the time to appreciate you for taking time out of your day to be listening to this content for you to expand and grow. Every single week, I am bringing on amazing humans, making an incredible impact in the world. And the reason why I do that is because I want to support you in doing exactly the same. I do a lot of work to curate what I call real humans. They're all respectful, enthusiastic, appreciative, and loving, and they're all doing amazing stuff. And I want to pull out their best insights to share them with you so that you can go out and create a massive impact in the world. And today's legendary leader of impact is Mike Maddock. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited for this episode. I'm going to read Mike's bio in just a little bit, but before I get to that, I want to tell you three things I want you to look out for in today's episode. Number one, how Mike leveraged his creativity and innovation to use fortune cookies (laughs) to get the attention of the incredible woman that became his wife. Number two, what it means to be an idea monkey and how to build a balanced and diverse team that leads to new thinking and growth. He's doing some incredibly cool things in this area. So look out for that. And number three, why coming up with as many ideas as possible is good, but not all ideas are created equal. So how do you go about screening ideas that will have the greatest potential for the biggest impact? So those are three things to look out for in today's episode. But who is Mike Maddock? Mike Maddock is an entrepreneur, keynote speaker, a best-selling author, and CEO coach. He is the founder of Flourish Forums, virtual CEO peer groups, McMuffin Creative Group, and innovation consultancy, Maddock Douglas. Mike co-chairs the Gathering of Titans Entrepreneurial Conclave at MIT and is the past president of the Entrepreneurs Organization Chicago and Young Presidents Organization Chicago chapter. Over 25% of the Fortune 500 have trusted Mike to help them envision and create new sources of growth. Mike has been using words and pictures to create smiles and build ideas his entire life. He is the author of four best-selling books, Brand New, Free the Idea Monkey, 
Flirting with the Uninterested, and finally, Plan D, his latest book about business disruptors, and I have read Plan D, and it was absolutely fantastic, and that's actually where we base lots of the content from the interview for today. The last thing I'm just going to add about Mike is that we didn't actually talk about this in the book, but he talks about people that are WYSIWYG people. <laughs> what you see is what you get people, and I cannot say enough that Mike is absolutely a WYSIWYG person. He's a good freaking human. He was the same person that I was reading about in the book that showed up on the interview today, and he's just so much fun. He's a great storyteller, and you can tell he he's he's uh, practiced his accents because every time he tells a story that involves someone else, he's got a great accent to toss them into it. And the last thing I'm going to say is another thing that we talk about in today's episode is the Colby. Um, this has come up in several other episodes in the past, but it is a test that you can take that has been incredibly impactful in my life. And it doesn't measure intelligence, personality, or social style. What it actually measures is the instinctive ways that you take action. So basically there's four numbers uh, the first number is fact finder, how you gather and share information. The second is follow through, how you organize. The third is quick start, how you deal with risks and uncertainty. And the fourth is implementer, how you handle space and tangibles. So my score is a five, four, eight, three, which means I'm a five fact finder, four follow through, eight quick start, and three implementer. So that's just, I don't want to give you a, a Colby masterclass, but this has come up multiple, multiple times on the show. So if you are interested in that and figuring out how you naturally use your instincts to uh, solve problems, I would highly recommend that you check out the Colby uh, and then also maybe do a dive into episode number 46, which was with Emily Melius, where she talks about that in depth and also the episode with Justin Breen. We talk a lot about, about the Colby. So with all that said, that little mini Colby update, here is my WYSIWYG friend, Mike Maddock. If you had to pick between A, making a ton of money, B, being happy, healthy, and surrounded with people you love, or C, making a meaningful impact on the world, which would you choose? The good news is that today we don't have to choose. So the question is, how can entrepreneurs like you and me, who have a vision for our lives and aren't willing to settle for anything less, how can we become financially successful and have a big impact while prioritizing our happiness, health, and relationships? You and I are on a mission to find out, and we have an incredible journey ahead of us. My name is Brandon Fong, and welcome to the 7 Bigger Millennials Podcast. Mr. Mike Maddock, welcome to the show. Super excited to have you here, my friend. This is going to be so much fun. An honor and a pleasure, Brandon. Yes. Um, <laughs> oh, man. So I was trying to figure out where we could start with this conversation. And, and you and I started our conversation before we hit record talking about your wife. And I found a really, really cool story about how you met. And it has to do with fortune cookies. <laughs> I, would love to, I would love for you to share the fortune cookie story. <laughs> All right. So I... Um... I started, I, I've been an entrepreneur since I was a teenager, but I decided when I graduated that I'd get a real job. I got a job at a company called GSI and it was a small company and I was hired as an art director. They brought me into a conference room and there were about 25 people and they said, you know, my boss said, this is Mike Maddock. We've just hired him as an art director. Mike, this is Joe. This is Tom. This is Ruth. This is Ruth. This is Ruth. <laughs> and I was like a cartoon character, like Pepe Le Pew. I just kind of stopped, time stopped, and I looked at this beautiful woman, and I, all I could hear was her name, and that was it. I, I went home that night, and I told my mom that I called my mom, and I said, hey, I met the girl I'm going to marry today. This turned out to be bad news for Ruth because she'd been dating the same guy for five years. <laughs> and I spent the next eight months, honest to God, doing anything I could anything I could to get her attention. 
Um, there's a phrase for this now. It's called sexual harassment, but I had no idea that existed. <laughs> I was young. And so eight months in, um, it was Joe's birthday the next day. And we started talking about, we should do something for Joe. Let's order Chinese food. So we did. And I went home and hashed a plan. I went uh, to a bulk food store and bought all kinds of fortune cookies. Um, I tweezered out the fortunes. I took an old-fashioned typewriter and typed up new fortunes. And then the next day, waited in the parking lot for the food to arrive, and I exchanged the fortune cookies they brought with the fortune cookies that I had hacked. And then sat through lunch, waiting for the time when everyone would open their fortune cookies. And at the end of lunch, um, people started popping open there. You know, you do that thing in bed. You know, you read a fortune cookie and in bed. Yeah. Anyway, I digress. Um, people started popping over in their fortune cookies. And they all had things like, like you know, uh, dump Pete, date Mike, choose Mike. <laughs> How about Mike? Mike would be nice. And the temperature on Ruthie's face went up. I mean, she started turning really red. Everyone looked at her and, and someone said, I think he might like you. Um, and, uh, you know, eventually, uh, she and her boyfriend broke up and, uh, we were married for 31 years. He, you, you broke up. You didn't hire someone to take care of him or it was, <laughs> yeah, it was, they, they, you have to find the body. Yeah. No, I mean, I, uh, I, to Ruthie's credit, she never gave me, uh, any sense at all that I had a chance. And, um, you know, it was a war of attrition. I, 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 I eventually she wore it down so yeah it's a good story that's that's um, beautiful i i think it just shows a lot about you and obviously your care for the people that you love and and not being afraid of sharing that with people in really unique and cool ways very creative too uh love that that's a nice spin brandon i think it shows that I, i'm a complete stalker but whatever <laughs> i'll take i'll take the compliments <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll stick with we'll stick with my version we'll, we'll use that moving forward I love that. So I, I wanted to start there because I always like starting with earlier stories uh, that kind of just show a little bit you and 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 your personality. And I I want to start with a uh, do it jump into another story and then we can start doc, uh, talking about some of the incredible concepts that you te teach on innovation and uh, everything that you have in your book called Plan D. But uh, Father Joe Ruiz, tell me a little bit about him and how he made an impact in your life. Yeah, so Father Joe Ruiz, I went to St. Joseph's School. It's a Catholic school in Homewood, Illinois. And Father Joe Ruiz was uh, a teacher there, and he was this enlightened priest. He taught us how to meditate. Um, he looked like uh, he he looked like Santa Claus out of uniform. He laughed like Fozzie Bear from the Muppets. He had a gappy. <laughs> he was like ah ah. <laughs> and uh, and I liked him. I liked him a lot. And I had this debate with my dad. <clears throat> Excuse me. My father went to Notre Dame on a partial debate scholarship, so we would argue about everything, um, debate about everything. I wanted to go to Homewood Flossmore, a public school. Uh, he thought that the nuns weren't finished with me yet. <laughs> they didn't know what to do with me. So they wanted me to go to Marian Catholic. And I argued that HF had... 43 classes in the arts. I wanted to be an architect or designer or something. And Marion had three at the time. And so he told me I could do it as on one condition that I joined this teen youth group called Teen Encounter. Father Joe ran it. We had a retreat um, the summer between eighth grade and freshman year. And I was really starting to notice girls. So I was running around trying to get women's attention at this or girls' attention at this retreat during this retreat. 
and I saw Father Joe, and he was watching me like a tennis match, running back and forth and back and forth. And eventually he called me over and he's like, hey, and he's how he sounds like, hey, Mike, uh, hey, Mike, <laughs> uh, I noticed something about you, Mike. Uh, I, you, well, we're friends, right? You, we like each other, right, Mike? And I, and I said, yeah, Joe, we like each other. Pay attention, Mike, pay attention. This is important because I've been watching you now for a couple of years and I noticed something about you and I want to share with you right now. It's important. You pay paying attention. And I said, yeah, Joe, I, I'm paying attention. And what's that? And he goes, yeah, I've noticed you can be a real asshole. You know that? And I remember, you know, there are these moments in life where time just kind of stops. I already talked about one with Ruthie and everything changes in an instant. And I had never heard a priest swear. And um, I mean, he really, he did it intentionally and, and it, it caught me. I mean, I remember like tearing up and because he was right, I was sort of an intellectual bo- bully. And then he pointed out to me that I was also the kid that took care of one of my friends who had Down syndrome and I was a little bit righteous, you know, the protector of the weak kind of as a kid. And he challenged me, he said, why don't you be more like that kid going forward? Why don't you just focus on being that guy instead of being such an asshole all the time? And he changed me. And, um, you know, if you pay attention there are people in your life who have the right to cut you, you know, to, to make you wake up and see something that you might be blind to. And I'm really grateful that I've had, you know, a handful of people through my life who have kind of snapped me out of it and set me straight. You know, John Wooden said, show me your friends. I'll show you your future. And I've been really fortunate to have, friends who have been willing to say, stop being such an asshole right at the moment when I needed to hear it. And Joe, God love him. He was one of those guys. Hmm. You know, in my research, I found you, you and I share a favorite mutual quote that my listeners hear me use all the time, but it's, you can't read the label from inside the jar. And, you know, that's just a perfect example of somebody being like, Hey, <laughs> I see something about you that you don't fully realize in yourself. And that's just such the beauty of the human condition is we have these limited perspectives and it sometimes takes an early person like a father, Joe Ruiz to, to show you that mirror that you couldn't see yourself, which is absolutely beautiful. And you, you kind of alluded to it, but I, I think to go from here would be a great to talk a little bit about um, something that was also really inspiring. As I, as I read your book, you talk about your life purpose as to inspire and empower curiosity and in the work that I've done on myself to kind of uncover what I believe my life purpose to be, it does require lots of those, like, first of all, revisiting those early stories and kind of seeing the threads, like, you know, you uh, getting in front of Ruth and and J- Joe sharing some stuff with you. But I would love for you to share a little bit more about your life purpose and maybe how you began to uncover some of that. Yeah, so thanks. I, I remember seeing um, Simon Cowell, or is that si- Simon Simon? <laughs> I've got Simon Cowell in mind because I have a friend who is like the Simon Cowell for CEOs. And I was talking to him earlier, <laughs> Simon Senek, another friend, um, maybe 15 years ago, do the golden circle to start with why. And, you know, it was at a, in a small classroom at MIT. And I, I just, you know, um, I have a great Simon Senek story, by the way, we could tell in a second, but anyway, mm. he, 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 uh, you know, I came home and I was like, what is my purpose? What is my purpose? And to your point, Brandon, if you look back 
at, you know, look at your calendar in your checkbook to see what you really care about. If you want to know what someone cares about, look at their calendar and their checkbook. And I, I, so I did, I was looking at what I was spending my time and money doing, and it was all about creating possibility. Um, I really like to make people believe they can change the world and then give them the tools, the connection, the framework to do it. Like, oh my gosh, that's a really big idea. Have you met Brandon? He's working on something like that. that that's so all of my businesses and they're all service businesses are about connecting ideas and people, ideas and possibility. And so those words really resonated with me and I could prove that they were true just by looking at this business and this business and this relationship and this relationship and this business. And I think your life is like a bunch of breadcrumbs that leads you to your purpose. Um, and the sooner you figure out what it is, the better. Um, but it, I think it takes most of us too, too long to figure it out. Hmm. What were some of the biggest, um, well, I mean, we could go into your Simon Sinek story. I don't know if that's related to this, but like what, if somebody's <laughs> listening to this and they're like, okay, um, you know, it sounds incredible to have that level of clarity and foundation to build stuff from what, what were some of the best questions that you asked yourself, thought exercises or resources you might recommend for someone to kind of build from that foundation? Yeah. Okay. So they're, they're, they're sort of counterintuitive. Um, the one, the one that's obvious is just think about the times when you feel most alive, when you're most in flow, where time just goes by. Like, wow, I can't believe the day's over. What were you doing that mm -hmm. that made time go so quickly? And the one that's counterintuitive is what is really easy for you. Um, I th unfortunately, our, we're taught to work on our weaknesses. You know, we, we at school, you got a D, you got to study harder. Instead of going, wow, like ironically, I used to get detentions for talking too much and doodling. Mm -hmm. At 24 years old, I was offered the editorial cartoonist position for the, one of the largest newspaper chains in the country. And um, now I get paid to speak. I mean, oh, the irony, that's what <laughs> I would get in trouble for. So people assume that it becomes easy for you. It comes easy for everyone else. I remember being in a... Uh, in a year long program at uh, Northwestern Kellogg. And what was beautiful about it was that I was surrounded by all these other executives and we would spend a couple of weeks on modules, accounting, strategy, marketing, negotiation. And I remember, you know, sitting next to my new friends and realizing that they sucked at things that came really easy for me and vice versa. And having that you know, two weeks later, the person that was a genius sitting next to you in management accounting is now desperately trying to figure out what marketing is all about. That was a real eye opener for me. And mm -hmm. so don't assume just because something is really easy for you that it's easy for everyone else that your purpose is probably right there. That's why it's so easy for you. So mm -hmm. that that's a that's a hack that, that we're taught not to pay attention to. Yeah. I think it's so, like you said, it's just so easy to discredit the value because you're so close to it, you know? And, and I, one of the things I've started to do recently is I run round tables. I call them expeditions that are exclusively for my guests. And one of the things I actually have them do in the intro exercises, I don't let them share what they do. I ask them to tell a story that I learned from our interview together. And I have other people tell them if they were to guess what their superpower is, what do they think it would be? And it is crazy how accurate people are without being able to say or know what they do 
in just a few seconds of hearing someone share a story, how much in alignment it is. And so I think that's another thing that I realized is that a mistake that I used to make was when somebody would give me a compliment, I would just be like, oh, you know, thank you. And I'd kind of just brush it off. But like, I found that when somebody gives you a compliment, they're giving you a gift. And like, that is insight into something that you can't quite see yet. And, and just taking the time to not only appreciate that, but take it really seriously, because those are seeds of genius that people are planting for you. And that's super valuable if you leverage it effectively. Yeah. I like just to build on that, Brandon. I love that exercise. Thank you for, for sharing that. Malcolm Gladwell, I think it was in Blink, talked about a study how people could walk in someone's living room for 12 minutes and know more about them just by absorbing what's in their living room than someone that calls them their best friend. You absorb things about people. One of the, one of my regrets is, and I don't have a lot of them, is that I didn't listen to my elders earlier or mm. early enough. So um, I give my great grandmother credit for giving me a lot of self-esteem. I remember she would call me over um, and I'd sit on her lap and she lived to 104 years old. Her husband was chief creative officer, J. Walter Thompson, and an editor at Chicago Daily News. So he could he could write and he could draw. He was an ad guy. And she would whisper in my ear, she'd go, you got it, kid. You're the one. There's something special about you. I can spot them. Believe me, you're the one. Now, she might have said that to everyone else, but I actually believed her. I'm like, wow, I'm pretty special. That that gift that she gave me was given to me again and again and again, but I didn't always take it. Mm. I remember when um, we had a, a Maddox Douglas at one point was the largest privately held creative services firm in Chicago. And I wanted to make us bigger and bigger and better. So I went and hired um, four or five senior executives from agencies in Chicago that had gone from 50 to 200 people. And I thought, okay, they'll t teach me how to do it. And I remember there was an intervention where they brought me into a room and said, you're the chief creative officer. And I said, what? You are our chief creative officer. You have what it takes to be a chief creative officer. And um, I did not have enough confidence. I didn't think I was old enough. I just didn't believe them. And then, you know, fast forward 10 years, I was hanging out with chief creative officers of Lear Burnett and Jay, all these guys. I'm like, oh my God, they, I, I could have done it. But I just didn't believe in myself. So paying attention to people that see possibility in you and, you know, believe them. If they see it, they're probably right. Hmm. Let's keep building on this because I know a chapter in your book, which by the way, would highly recommend it's plan D lessons from the world's most successful disruptors. And this is the most recent one. I believe this, you got a bunch of other ones, but one of the chapters kind of later on in the book is called purpose first profit second. And I love that chapter. And I think it's so relevant, especially from, you know, the whole theme of this show is how do you prioritize your happiness, health and relationships while we build our, our businesses. Um, and so I would love for you to share a little bit about how and why you believe that you need to actually put your purpose first over profit? Well, um, I won't bore you with frameworks, but one of my favorite frameworks is the innovation framework and it's in the book. And what I have found is that um, purpose is a North star. You know, it purpose allows a leader or a CEO to bring people along with outrageous ideas in a way that make them go, oh my gosh, we have to do this. 
and it and and it and it kicks the shit out of profit. Profit isn't all that motivating. You know, most companies are about profit, but when you have a company that's like, look, this is what we stand for, this is where we're going, this is how we're gonna change the world, this is our purpose, people rally to it. And so finding a great purpose that brings uh, people along is um is powerful. And here's where I'll tell the Simon Sinek story because it's appropriate. It. So I had asked Simon to come and speak at a conference in Chicago 10 years ago. And it was a conference of, of, of CEOs and it probably 75 CEOs in the room. And I was moderating. And he came in in the morning, sat on a chair. He was going to speak at two in the afternoon, but he's just hanging out. And, um, and for those of you who don't know who Simon is, he wrote a, a seminal book called Start With Why, which is about your purpose, you know, like leading with why instead of why or how. Um, and so he's watching and people are introducing themselves and I'm bringing them up one at a time. And about 15 minutes into the introductions, the door swings open and this guy comes in and he's talking on a pink sequined flip phone. <laughs> Honest to God, there's sequins on the phone. It's pink. And he's yelling. You know how you see people at the airport and they're talking really loud. You're like, and you start answering them just because they're so annoying. Anyway, he's talking really loud. This guy's got spiked white hair. He's wearing some kind of leather pants, a leather biker jacket. And he just doesn't care what's going on. Walks in, goes over to the breakfast buffet, which is being cleaned up, starts slamming scrambled eggs. Really disruptive. Fast forward. It's two in the afternoon. Simon does his start with why you know, the golden circle on a flipboard and drops, does the mic drop? Who has questions, you know? And you've got surgeons going, well, I'm an orthopedic surgeon. What's my why? And he's trying to explain to people that can't wrap their heads around what his thesis is. He goes, well, here, hold on. Let me tell you a story. And let me just, as a predicate, let me say, I could be kind of a dick, okay? <laughs> so this morning, you... You with the, what are those alligator boots and leather pants? <laughs> you, you come in here and you, you're so disruptive while these people are introducing themselves. And I'm thinking to myself, who's this asshole that is completely ruining this meeting? But then you got up here and while everyone else in this meeting said what they did, you said why you do it. And your why and my why are the same which means you can call me anytime and my answer will be yes, because we share the, the, the same purpose. Um, that was Bobby Sager, the mm. person who was disruptive. And Bobby Sager runs around the globe with Sting doing face-to-face -face philanthropy. He is a relatively famous philanthropist that, um, you know, he's in PE, very rich, but he's about that. Um, that's the power of a purpose. You know, that when people align on a purpose, anything is possible. Hmm. So beautiful and just such a good foundation to build from. So I, I'm trying to think about where, where we can go from here, but we've already kind of explored some of the ideas of identifying your purpose and then building and being intentional about leveraging that as a foundation. I think there's a, 
the way I see it in my head, there's several kind of foundational concepts that you cover in in Plan D. So I'd love to kind of cover some of those foundational concepts. And you mentioned boring frameworks before, which I disagree with, because I would love to get into some of your frameworks. But um, I would love for you to share, I, I, this kind of crosses over to some of your other work, but I would love for you to share the the difference between the idea monkey versus the ringleader and kind of what those two characters are and how they could play uh, a role in business. Yeah, so I wrote a book called Free the Idea Monkey to focus on what matters most. Um, the book was titled after, well, I was walking by Raf, a, a business partner and operator, and he he said, hey, Idea Monkey, Idea Monkey, get in here, I need an idea. And for me, he was he was sort of tongue-in-cheek, it was sort of an insult, so that, and I'm like, you know, a wind-up to her, I'm like, huh? You know, like, <laughs> idea, 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 you know, I, I love having ideas. And um, so I wrote a book about it, and it's really about the tension between the visionary and the operator, uh, Roy and Walt Disney, and wherever you, Sheryl Sandberg and Mark Zuckerberg, wherever you see companies that have the ability to operate with great efficiency and reinvent um, magically, there's this tension between these two characters, archetypes. And it is, um, at its best, it's like a love affair. At its worst, it turns into... Um, complete dysfunction. So I wrote a book uh, about that tension, that dance between the idea monkey and the ringleader, and um, <laughs> and just you know, with humility, I, I'm a. I think I'm a pretty good starter and a pretty lousy finisher. So I am definitely the idea monkey. You you can test for it. I use the Colby to test for it, and just evidence of what a lousy finisher I am. Um, I've created. A, a, seven or so real businesses, um, four of which have been multi-million dollar businesses, two million, five million, eight million, eighteen million, yay me. What they also had in common is that all of them went rose really quickly and then went you know, just flattened <laughs> out. And right after I wrote Free the Idea Monkey, I tested our executive team. Now this is a company that went from three to $18 million in revenue in something like five or six years, which is pretty extraordinary growth. And it was a service company. Um, and I was shocked to find that um, everybody, everybody on our leadership team tested as an idea monkey, except for our CFO. <laughs> so that was sobering to me. Uh, my latest company is built around, the, it's called Flourish Forums. And it's modeled after um, executive teams that I've seen really be able to scale <clears throat> in my own experience with forums, where um, a forum is a group of people that meets monthly, typically most great, um, like EO, YPO, Vistage, Strategic Coach, these, these organizations that bring peers together, their number one benefit is forum. The difference in Flourish Forum is that I use the Colby to test people and I engineer it to have six different types of leaders. They're all peers, they're all PL owners, but there's a visionary, or let's start with the operator. There's an operator, there's a strategist, there's a rainmaker, there's a visionary, there's a tech futurist, and there's an orchestrator. And the, 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 the thinking is that when you bring your toughest challenge, all six of those characters are gonna see the problem differently. And that is where the action is. You know, a bunch of visionaries, what we were really good at was reinventing. We'd get to every meeting like, we need a new idea instead of operating with precision. When you have those six different characters, 
um, if you're stuck, it's probably because you're working on the wrong problem and you're going to more likely get unstuck when someone sees your problem differently. It's so brilliant. And I think like our natural bias is that we want to be surrounded by people that think like us because like they make us feel good. They understand us. And, and I totally understand. And the, I'm a, I'm a Colby five, four, eight, three. So I don't know where that puts me in one of those categories, <laughs> but, um, I just, I would be curious to expand on this a little bit because Colby is a concept that has come up a ton, especially with lots of the incredible people that have been on my show. They, they talk about leveraging the Colby effectively. And so I, I don't want to go into the weeds with Kobe. I would encourage anybody to go listen to the episode either with Justin Breen. Uh, we, we did a lot of Colby talk. Um, uh, but, but anyways, without going too, too into the weeds with Colby, are you just, uh, just leveraging their scores and that's immediately how do you categorize people or how are you doing this? Because I think it's really important if, even if they, if they go check out a flourish forum, that's great, but also thinking from your perspective, like how do you surround yourself with other people that can show you and think in different ways? So how do you, categorize these people into the the different ways that you just shared yeah so and uh, i'm a junkie of enneagram myers briggs disc i love them all and um probably because i'm a narcissist i don't know why i just really like <laughs> i've taken all of them too man <laughs> <laughs> you want to see my folder anyway so what i love about colby is that it's reliable it doesn't really change after third grade it's a great parenting tool brandon we were talking about kids earlier before we get on here and um it's really valuable to see you know uh what how you're how people react in flow and under pressure and it's the same and on your advisory board when your hair's on fire you want people to reliably to run to that seat um oh and by the way that's one other uh digression real quick at the end of the day the best leaders they can do everything they can operate they can do strategy they can make rain they, but what did god make them to do what they typically do is re retreat to the seat that's really easy for them mm -hmm. that that they were made to do and then they surround themselves with people that retreat to the other seat that they don't like doing so much so um your colby score is a visionary rainmaker score hmm. um and and i what i've done is i've i've taken the best people I know in every one of those seats and correlated a pattern. So it's not a science, it's just instructive. And typically I will say primary seat is this, secondary seat is this. The ones that Colby really points to are the operator, the strategist, the orchestrator, and the visionary. The rainmaker and the tech futurist are a little squishy. Um, and I'll look at a CV more than that. So it's a pattern that I'm looking for more than anything else. Hmm. I, you, you, I could easily just ask questions about this all day. So one more on this and then we'll move to something <laughs> else. But, but, but for, so, so I'm assuming like the, obviously the high quick start in, in what you saw and this, maybe this is me, my narcissist version of, I want to find out more about tests from an expert. <laughs> so the, 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 yeah. it, 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 what is it about the numbers that you're looking for in the rainmaker and the visionary? Is it like, as long as you're above a seven, is that what you're, you're, you're kind of like a quick start enough to kind of be in this realm? No, like, how do you it's the pattern so that yeah you you got it right the quick start is that the, the the entrepreneurial pattern is like three three nine three okay it's um the, the uh the implementer thing the last score only matters that's the weeds but that that score really matters when it's higher if it's lower it doesn't matter that much in terms of the contract that i'm talking about the strategist pattern is a higher fact finder lower follow-through high quick start Strategists like to think really hard about something, do their homework, 
delegate it and then parachute in to fix it when it isn't working. Operators are high uh, fact finders, high follow through, low quick start. So what you want is at the end of the day, you, you, you want a board of advisors or in this case, a forum that is just going to see a problem differently. I'll give you examples. I just wrote an ink article about this. It, it published yesterday afternoon and it's how you know you're not getting enough out of your forum. Um, it was the lead article yesterday and today. And I use the example of if I went to your group and said, um, hey, we're no longer profitable, what would we do? The operator would say, we're going to take out the balance sheet. We're going to punish every line. We're going to squeeze. We're going to get profitable. The strategist might say, we're measuring the wrong thing. We've been measuring this. We need to measure that. The rainmaker is going to say, people are, are, aren't busy enough. Let's put more sausage into the machine. We're not, we'll, we'll just get them to work harder. The visionary will say, our product is irrelevant. We need to create, we need a new product. We have to reinvent everything or something like that. Tech futurists will say, I can make us more efficient with this new technology. And the orchestrator, which is the unicorn on the team, will say something like, um, we, have an, we have a trust issue. We don't trust each other enough to hold our, uh, ourselves accountable. We're all making excuses for each other. And until we trust each other more, um, no metric is going to matter. <laughs> Because we're just like making excuses. Who is right? They're all right at one moment in time. But unless you have all those perspectives, you'll never consider anything other than, oh, we got to squeeze costs or we have to reinvent. And so yeah. it's about balance. I love that. Okay, so let, let's take that and expand on it. And and if you're not familiar with the Colby, I'll make sure in the intro, I provided you with some additional resources so you can understand all those different levels of profiles. But I just think it's so valuable, especially building on our favorite quote, you can't read the label from inside the jar. What if your jar slash mirror was 3D and in <laughs> and, and four dimensions, you know, you're seeing it in all different ways. And so let's, let's kind of build on this. And let's say, okay, you, 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 you understand yourself more effectively, and you have some ways to get some feedback. But let's start turning that into innovation. Another concept that you talk about in your book is insight first, idea second. Um, and I would love for you to share about this as kind of another foundational concept because I think it's, I've never heard it put this way exactly before. Yeah. So um, my primary business, Maddox Douglas, has been around for 32 years now and it's an innovation consulting firm. And innovation is the first book that I wrote is called um, Brand New Solving the Innovation Paradox. The innovation paradox is the harder that we try to innovate, the worse we get at it. And that is true. We did a whole bunch of research um, that proved that uh, the more people focused on innovation, the worse, the worse they got it. And this, that's a whole nother podcast. Um, but core to that is that, and, and, and by the way, Accenture just followed up that research about three years ago, and it's gotten 10% more true since we published the book. So hmm. while innovation was becoming a buzzword, ironically, you've gotten worse at it. Um, but I digress. So I walk into a, um, you know, a fortune 100 company and innovation is chiseled in granite. The annual report says innovation. You sit down with the CEO and they say, we're all about innovation. And I say, well, how do you define innovation? And no one knows what it means. Procter and Gamble taught me that the definition of innovation is, and just think of a Venn diagram, it's a synchronized intersection of a need in the market, I'll call it an insight, um, followed by an idea, followed by an experience that makes people go, oh my gosh, you solved my problem. And it has to be in that order. 
The difference between inventors and innovators is inventors start with ideas and look for someone that needs them. Innovators always start with a burning need and saying, okay, now how do we fix it? And then you can fix it with a new idea, an acquisition, an idea you're already working on, but the insight matters. So what we teach our clients is there's a formula for an insight statement. It's I statement of fact, because reason to believe, but tension. I say, look for the sexy, but two T's, not one. I mm. statement of fact, because reason to believe, but there's got to be, but, um, and what, the, what you want to do is you want to have your team come up with all these insight statements and you can literally quantify them. So for example, um, I want fast food because I'm always running my kids from one athletic event to another, but it trashes my car. That was an insight statement roughly that we worked on for McDonald's. It quantified as the number one need for busy parents, soccer moms and soccer dads. And it led to a whole slew of handheld foods. The mm. snack wrap came from that insight statement. People wanted fast food that wouldn't mess up their car. So they started developing these handheld packages, handheld food that you could eat while driving. Mean, your kids could eat them and your car wouldn't get trashed. That's the beauty of an insight statement. Because once you know the target you're aiming for, you can bring from outside your jar, you can bring in packaging experts and handheld food experts and consumers and come up with ideas that solve that problem. Hit the back button a few times if you want to skip back 30 seconds and go re-listen to that. Just just yeah. so you, I'll, I'll maybe, I, statement of fact, because reason to believe, but with two T's, attention. big but, <laughs> mark attention. So that, I, that's so cool. Yeah, go ahead. It, it, I, uh, quick story, um, because it brings it to life. So I said Procter & Gamble taught me the definition of innovation. They hired us 12 years ago or so. It was like the best day of my life because I really adore that company. They're so good at consumer insight work and putting new products on the shelf. They said, we need new dentist products. We did all this research. We went down. We're going to brainstorm. Um, I'm running around like an idea monkey at noon. I, we've got <laughs> dentists, we've got clients, we've got experts, we've got, we're at the zoo, there's post-it notes, there's Play-Doh, there's, you know, beanbag chairs. It's the best day of my life. And at noon, I go up to one of their clients. I'm like, hey, listen, isn't this great? I mean, we got like 300 ideas. This is unbelievable. We're doing great in here, aren't we? And this guy <laughs> looks at him and he's like, uh, do you know what I do, son, for a living? And I'm like, uh, you're, a, you're a dentist? I turned into Herbie. You're a dentist? And he's, <laughs> he's, he's like, that's right, son. That means I'm a doctor. You know what else that means? It means I could give a damn about white teeth. Now you keep coming up with these ideas about white teeth. They're a false proxy. You know what I care about? Gingivitis. Gingivitis matters. You could have gum disease and have the whitest teeth. So for the rest of the day, I don't want to hear one more idea about white teeth. And the next time you come into a room like this, I suggest you do your homework. No, it's not going well. I mean, this this guy's looking at me and I shriveled. I was like a different guy for the rest of the day. And at the end of the day, I went to our client. I said, I don't think that went well. That guy yelled at me and so did his friend. And P&G for <laughs> credit said, no, you know, you, we've done our homework. It was a great session. If they don't want it, we'll find someone that does. Now that was a session that led to uh, white strips and all other kinds of whitening products, but it was it was born out of the insight. I want bright a brighter smile because it makes me look younger. But brushing doesn't make my teeth white enough. 
And we've all gone to the dentist and looked at our teeth after being tortured for an hour. We got bloody gums and our teeth looked the same. Everyone was having the same experiences, but inside the jar, you can't read the label when you're sitting inside the jar. Dentists couldn't see it. That was a $4 billion need. It's now an $11 billion uh, market. And uh, four or five years after that session, uh, a case went in front of the Supreme Court arguing that only dentists should be able to whiten teeth, and they lost. So that is an example of two things. You know, what happens when your expertise gets in the way and, and clouds your vision and the power of a great insight statement? Mm. Let's make this more concrete for people, even more so, because that was an incredible story. But, you know, you kind of alluded to it a bunch, but this is something that you make a point to discuss in the book is talking about how hate should impact the way that we think about innovation. I think this might give people like a, a like, oh, like that's that's a really cool thing that I can just start and grab with. So what does hate have to do with the way we think about innovation? <laughs> you're, really, you're really good at what you do, Brandon. Um, I like to say embrace the hate to innovate. And so remember that sexy but i state in the back because reasonably but that tension if you really hate it chances are the 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 current market is making well that's just the way it is they make excuses for it it's always been that way you can't change that it's against the law it's either the legacy systems won't let you do it and that's how napster moments happen what happens is entrepreneurs like your audience and you they, they wake up and like, God, I hate this. How come nobody does anything about it? And they, they're like, I'm going to, I'm going to fix this. And, and a Napster moment is when someone with no business being in your business comes along and puts you out of business. Hmm. Napster was developed by a 16 year old kid that just wanted to be able to play one song at a time. So he wrote a line of code to do it. He wasn't trying to put any record business or he wasn't trying to put Sony or record stores out of business. He was trying to fix a problem that record companies said, no, that's impossible. You have to buy the whole album. He hated that. So he embraced the hate to innovate. So the more someone hates something, the less likely it is, weirdly, that, it, that it, the current organization is going to change it because they're making excuses about it. And the more likely it is that you can disrupt that organization by changing it. So the, the, the greatest innovation comes with the greatest hate. Embrace the hate to innovate. Hmm. So I think, you know, you just talked about how innovation comes from the hate. And that's kind of when you talked before, you kind of went over at a high level, is that the the real bullseye that we're trying to get after is the combination of insight idea and how you communicate that. So I can imagine that's where lots of ideas come from is like you hate, hate stuff, but you talked about it being in the order of insight idea and communication and experience. And um, so I, I want to continue to unpack this a little bit. I, one of the things that I highlighted and put stars next to in my notes was you talked about um, you're oftentimes people miss the nuances and translating perceived needs into the correct best experiences. Um, so I, I would love for you to maybe share a little bit about how, what are some of those nuances of the insights? Because if we're, if there's an idea monkey listening to this, they're like, I hate it. And they go build it. If it's not backed by the insights effectively, uh, we can miss it. But what are some of the ways that we can make sure that we're actually understanding the insights correctly? Yeah. And so I, I'm going to try not to get too much in the weeds here, but sure. we bought we purchased a research company about 10 years ago, and it was a quantitative first, qualitative second. 
Um, at the time, ethnographies were a big deal. Ethnographies are simply doing research, walking in the footsteps of your of your um, your consumer. For example, I mentioned P and G. A famous ethnography was researchers got paid to watch busy um, moms take showers. Now that's a gig that I could get behind. But back, they literally did. They would watch um, busy moms take showers and pert. My favorite shampoo is a combination of conditioner and shampoo. And that came from watching busy moms who had combined because they didn't have time. So they combined it. Wow, mm. there's a product idea. So um, really understanding the, the footsteps, the language, and the language of your consumer is how you connect the, 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 in, the need, the idea, and the experience. We worked for SC Johnson, and we um, we named multi-purpose, excuse me, multi-surface pledge because that's how people talked about it. They'd say, "I just want something that will clean multi-surfaces." So that's where the name came from. It came right out of the research. I strongly believe that the people that are who are coming up with the insight should parent the idea all the way to market. The people that are doing the research should be part of the people that write the copy, should be part of the people that create the concept because they know the words, they know the feeling, they know the experience. You can't unbundle that. Um, so, so, and one other thing, the beauty of an insight statement for really sophisticated companies is that you can come up with hundreds and that's, we did all this research, so let's fill in the blanks. I, who are you? statement of me need this is my need um because and but what's the tension just fill them in fill them in fill them in and then you can quantify literally force rank the top two or three biggest insights the ones that like that was a i said it was a four billion dollar market need because it was we quantified we're like here's the target and then bringing people in that are the customer that have that experience that are the experts to do the brainstorming to solve for it allows you to be agnostic around, okay, there's got to be 20 different ways to solve for this, right? And now you can have ideas that hit that target. So I, I hope I'm answering your question. I'm, yeah. I'm looking at your expression, Brandon, and I'm trying to keep it from getting down into the weeds, but there's some, some thinking around how you start with, I hate this, how to characterize how you hate it, and then what are the ideas and then the experience. One last thing. Um, the more emotional, mm. if you can ladder up to an emotional hate, an emotional need like that, I don't want to look, I want my teeth to look, um, whiter because it makes me look healthier and younger, but that's an emotional thing. It mm -hmm. isn't just like, I want white teeth. No, it makes me look better. I, I want to look good. So mm -hmm. if you can come up with an emotional need in the market, you're going, it's, it's much easier to create a product that people will talk about. And I would just say marketing is it marketing and advertising is a tax you pay for a bad idea, <laughs> which means that if you come up with something that really solves an emotional need, people will tell their friends about it. Yeah. I, I, immediately I start thinking about Eugene Schwartz for anybody that hasn't read breakthrough advertising, like talking about instead of creating a need, like go find the 
untapped market and direct it to something. I one quick you you talk some my facial expression. I was like, I want to zoom in here. So I want to zoom in on one small thing there because I'm really interested. And then um, if we can fit in uh, B to me, I think that's related to this. But I'll I'll, I'll ask my question first. When you talked about quantifying. Um, what are some of the ways that you look to quantify and determine the relevance of an insight? So here's where I'm coming from is like, if you've had conversations with people or you're doing the market research yourself, what are some of the things that you look for that make you realize that it's something that you should double down on? Is there kind of like any heuristics that you have, or is that getting way too much into the weeds? <laughs> yeah. Well, so I, I, Brandon, I really need to stay in my own swim lane here. Um, and I can, <laughs> okay. I can hear my business partner, Louisa going, Mike, that is not correct. But size of market, is the market growing? How much people are spending? Share a wallet. You can okay. literally do test. How much would you pay for this? What, how much more would you pay for this? So there are research techniques where you can, you know, you can say, oh my God, we're onto something here. Not my expertise. That's why I purchased a, a research company. So love that. I don't want to love that. That's right. <laughs> well, that, there's there is a classic three three nine three staying in his zone of genius of being the idea monkey, not answering from a, a nine or eight fact finder level. So I appreciate that. I, that makes my sense. My tongue is bleeding. <laughs> <laughs> okay, oh, so so let's let's let's. Uh, I would love for you to maybe end on this, and then I I ask a question that I always ask my guests, and then we can find out where we can everybody can discover where all the incredible things you're up to. But um, you talk about in your book, I believe that we've moved from a B2B to a B2C to a B2B, B2Me world. And the most evolved companies listen closely to their customers and customers, customer. So I know that's probably a big question to unpack in just a little bit, but I think this is super important. So, okay. Um, I'll use, I'll, I'll use Procter and Gamble again. <clears throat> right now in Arkansas, there's a meeting going on. And Procter and Gamble is in one room, and a uh, a, a mid-sized company is in another room. in In the room, it's at Walmart, and and the Procter and Gamble. The conversation sounds like this: um, Here's the new product that we just developed. It's a shampoo for um, this type of person who has this type of feeling, who spends this type of money, who is demanding this type of experience. Um, we are going to charge $4.27 for it. We are going to get an end dial. You're going to move this much product. Um, and here's what you're going to pay us for it. And Walmart says, yes, that's because, uh, Procter and Gamble isn't a business to business company. They're not a business to consumer company. They're a business to me company, B to me. They know their customer's customer better than their customer does. And that's where the power is. So if you're in a company and you think you are a B2B company, that's bad. If you think you're a B2C company, that's a little bit better. The best companies are B2Me. They think about psychographic, demographic, all that. They know their customer's customer's customer better than their customer does. And that's where all the power is. That's where the leverage is. So I want to encourage your listeners to really deeply understand their customer. And here's the irony. When you're an expert, we started with you can't read the label when you're sitting inside the jar. When you're an expert, your expertise blinds you to what your customer actually wants because you know what they need. You know they should care about gingivitis. They can give a shit about gingivitis. They just want their teeth whiter. How about you give them what they want and fix their gingivitis? That's where the action is. 
So that's mm-hmm. what B to B is. Uh, the best cut, the best um, insights are an operator's job. There are systems and processes. It's not about being empathic. It's about having a system and process where you're constantly checking in with your customer's customer to understand what they want. You're one step ahead of your sales department and what your customer is demanding. And when you can do that, you'll get a higher price and a more delighted customer. Mm, I love that. I had another friend of my another friend talk about how it's not B2B, it's not B2C, it's H to H. I think human to human. And I think it's just like super, super important to understand the the humans that are behind all the decisions of the people that you're talking to. We're so, seeing exactly the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Mike, this has been absolutely incredible. I love to kind of conclude on a a question that I like to ask lots of my guests, and then we can find out where people can continue to the journey, all the stuff that you're up to. But what is what does happiness mean to you, Mike? That's the question I love to ask. It could be your current definition, how it's evolved, but today, what is what does happiness mean to you, Mike? Um, well, so you know, we talked about how I was married for 32 years, and um, I we didn't I didn't say that my wife had passed from brain cancer in August, um, and I I made it through we made it through that by um focusing on moments and being grateful so i think the happiness is really the the discipline of understanding the power of gratefulness in the moment we only have moments brandon i mean this has been really fun i've i've really enjoyed being with you i i really enjoyed it what a like what a wonderful um moment that we had and that's all we get and so um I I, w- I would cross out happiness and replace it with gratefulness. I, my, if I could give my kids one gift, it would be to know how to be grateful regardless of what's going on. Um, so I, happiness is understanding that gratefulness is um, awesome. Beautiful. We'll not add anything to that except for um, I would highly encourage everybody to go check out Plan D, Lessons from the World's Most Successful Disruptors. I took pages and pages of notes. If you enjoyed some of the idea monkey concepts or how you can create innovation in a systematic way or just learn directly from how other innovators are creating these massive change, massive impact in the world, I think it's an incredible, incredible book to expand on this. But besides grabbing a copy of that, where else can people find out all the other stuff that you're up to, Mike? Well, so... Um... You know, I do a fair amount of speaking, mike-maddock.com. I'm currently uh, launching two more forums. So if you are looking for a peer group that is, um, you know, like a turnkey virtual advisory board, it's uh, Flourish Forums, plural.com. You shoot me a note and I'm happy to talk to you. And if I can connect any of your listeners um, to people that will help, buoy their possibility. I'm, I'm up, I'm up for it. So shoot me a note. I appreciate that so much. That'll all be linked up in the show notes. And I'm just going to have a conversation with you listening, building off of Mike's comment on the end of gratitude. I say it at the end of every episode, and I, I hope you can hear the sincerity in my voice and that this isn't something that I'm just saying, but I am so grateful that you're here listening right now and that you've spent your, your hour of your day hanging out with M- Mike and myself and, I know that there's something in here that can change someone's life. Um, and, and my 
life has absolutely been impacted by podcasts that have been shared with me. And so my ask is that if you've heard something today that has touched you, whether it was a story, whether it was listening to Mike's incredible accents that he can randomly produce for anybody that he's talked to, um, <laughs> there's something in here that can make someone smile or give someone an insight or or really help them to unlock the next level for them. So my ask is that you just take a second and, and share this with someone because you have no idea the ripple effect that that can create in someone's life. But uh, I appreciate you so much for listening. I really, really do. And Mike, any final things you want to say before we head off today? I'm grateful for you, Brandon. Thank you.